Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. We made very strong commitments in our uh, campaign. Commitments that we've delivered on just a few months later today. Whether it's the 75% on oil and gas methane reduction, whether it's uh, capping and cutting emissions in the oil and gas sector, which we are the first major oil and gas producing country to do that, or whether it's leading the world on carbon pricing. These are things that we laid out to Canadians we would do. Just a few months later, we're doing them. Prime Minister Trudeau won. What he and his government are doing as far as the environment is concerned and the energy industry is concerned, that has a is an issue of great concern and interest to my uh, first guest today, who is the premier designate for the province of Alberta. Daniel Smith joins us on the program. So, uh, Daniel, thank you very much. And I'm going to do this first name thing with you one more time. And then after that, it's going to be premier. Um, but what's it been like over the last several days? How do you prepare to become premier? It's been fantastic over the last few days. It's, it's so interesting because there's a lot of posturing that happens during a leadership campaign because, look, everyone's fighting it out and they're fighting it tough and they're going to they're going to take their best shots. But uh, what what is amazing, probably that the public doesn't see is that when the contest is over, it's over and most the vast, vast majority of people are willing to just put forgiveness first, say, hey, look, that was just a campaign. Now we've got to get on to the next one, which is looking forward to May when we've got to defeat the NDP. So I've just been delighted as people have been starting to repair their relationships and address some of the issues that caused some problems in the past. But I'm feeling really confident that we're going to be a united group going into into that election. You could have left uh, politics forever, and and uh, you had certainly a lot of experience in the province, and here you are, and uh, you've you've uh, come back, and and you're going to be the premier on Tuesday. What is the number one issue that uh, is of significance to the people of the province of Alberta? What's number one? Number one is healthcare. I um I, I think we're seeing this across the entire country. We've all sort of followed each other in allowing for bureaucrats and ex- experts to take control over our healthcare system. And they told us that they knew what they were doing. And so we deferred to them for many, many years. And now it's pretty clear they don't know what they're doing, that this facade of us having the best health system in the world has come crashing down. And it wasn't COVID that broke the system. It was COVID that made us all realize the system was broken. And when that occurs, it's time for the, the elected officials to take charge, to do some restructuring, to identify the problems and to and to solve them, so th- we will have some very rapid action on healthcare 
in the first 30 days. And uh, and I want to have a, a restructuring in place with probably within the next 90 days so that we can begin to ha- start having some local control and local decision making and address the local problems that have emerged from a system that has become overly centralized, overly bureaucratic. And maybe we'll be able to, to show some leadership that others will, will follow in the rest of the country. Yeah, it's a lot of what we're hearing about the healthcare system in this country, uh, whichever province we happen to be talking about or the national picture, is deeply concerning with hundreds of thousands of surgeries uh, delayed. And last weekend, we found about uh, found about children uh, with their surgeries and their diagnosis delayed, which is going to cost them throughout their lives. But uh, so uh, you mentioned on Thursday in your Thursday evening speech, which I watched, you mentioned personal health choices. Would that also uh, be a line that Ottawa shouldn't cross? Let's talk about that. What what should the personal choices be? You've talked about that for, for some time now. What do you envision? I think the, the main thing I'm concerned about is the division that was created over vaccine choice. I mean, I think a lot of people have been mischaracterized. They've been demonized. It started with the prime minister calling people names because they are a little bit more cautious or maybe they're a little bit more health conscious and they believe that they can keep their immune system strong and they should be able to make their own choices when we get into fall respiratory virus season about what they put into their bodies. I'm, I'm very respectful of people making those choices. Uh, we've had flu season and that has become endemic and you see about a third of the population makes the decision to protect themselves. And that's the, the attitude that we've got to bring to the issue of talking about COVID is that you take a vaccine to protect yourself and we have to stop demonizing people who make a different choice. So that's uh, what I'm. That's principally what I what I mean when I talk about not uh, not punishing people on the basis of the choices that they make. Because look what's happened. I mean, not only did we create division in society, and we created a dog pile. We created ostracism. People lost their jobs. People weren't allowed to travel up until uh, uh, October the first. And that is, has created a lot of hurt feelings and a lot of damage to society. We've got to we've got to acknowledge the damage that caused and repair it and make sure it doesn't happen again. Do you regret anything that you said about health care and individual choices for health? And uh, and also, do you regret anything that you said about COVID? You know, I have a lot of regrets about a, a lot of things. I've been in the public eye for 27 years. And I, I think there's, there's times that I've misspoken. There's times that I have said things that have hurt people's feelings or times that I've not communicated well and have been misunderstood. And that is just what happens when you elect imperfect people. I, I, I people know that I'm flawed and I think people are willing to forgive. I think they would rather have a leader that they can trust because they're sincere and they know that if they make mistakes, they'll apologize for them. But they'll also know that if they feel strongly about something, they'll stick to their guns. So people have gotten to know my personality over a very long time in public life. I know the the media is astonished that the people of Alberta gave me a second chance, but it took seven years of hard repair work to make sure that people understood I was with them. So um, it, it wasn't like it was an overnight success story or an overnight turnaround. But in the process of repairing those relationships, I think people have a pretty good idea of who I am. So am I going to be perfect? No. Am I going to make mistakes? Yep. Am I going to make the same mistakes in the future? I sure as heck hope not. But uh, yeah, there's of course I'll have regrets. And, and I just hope that people are in a forgiving frame of mind. Well, please don't count me among the media people who are astonished that people gave you a second chance in Alberta and that you're the uh, the premier to be. I, I had a good sense this was going to happen. I'm going to just play something back for you. 
and get your visceral response to this. And we played it at the beginning of the, of the show, of the segment. Here's the Prime Minister. We made very strong commitments in our uh, campaign. Commitments that we've delivered on just a few months later today. Whether it's the 75% on oil and gas methane reductions. Whether it's uh, capping and cutting emissions in the oil and gas sector, which uh, we are the first major oil and gas producing country to do that. Or whether it's leading the world on carbon pricing. These are things that we laid out to Canadians we would do. Just a few months later, we're doing them. All right. So there's Justin Trudeau at COP26. And uh, Daniel, you've promised there will be a different relationship with Mr. Trudeau. (laughs) And particularly, I would imagine, on issues like energy. And he, of course, is the architect of C69 and C48. So when you hear that, when you hear the prime minister say what he just said, please, what do you hear? How do you respond? Well, he spends a lot of time talking about matters that are within provincial jurisdiction. I would first observe that. When he's talking about carbon pricing, I should put on the record that it was Alberta that began the first carbon pricing. We have a program in place for those with high levels of emissions that if they go above the average in their industry, they put money into a fund and then that fund is used for innovation. So that was something that was created under Ed Stelmack and continued under all the subsequent premiers. So I just want to make sure that everyone knows he's taking credit for something Alberta already took the lead on. There's also widespread support for reducing methane emissions in Alberta because those are some of the simplest things to be able to do. It's in fact quite interesting to me to see that the Bitcoin miners have partnered with the energy sector to capture those emissions and turn them into Bitcoin. So that's one of the ways in which uh, the innovation is happening in Alberta that doesn't often get talked about. And there's a, a, a whole pile of innovation that happened around carbon capture using carbon dioxide for useful purposes and products, as well as the emerging hydrogen economy. So I just wish he'd give a little bit more credit to the people who are doing these things, which are the incredible innovators in our energy sector. Um, the I, I had had a conversation with the prime minister and indicated to him that we would be joining the federal delegation to COP27. I think that that's important to send a signal that we, we, do, we believe we need to speak on behalf of ourselves when it comes to those international forums. And so that is going to be in Egypt, I understand, in November. And I'm, I'm hoping that we'll be able to find more common ground because I, I think that there what is what is often not really understood about Alberta is is just how much our energy industry understands that they have to be able to show leadership on this if they're going to be able to to attract billions of dollars in investment for these projects. So I I think it's often been characterized as if the federal government is pushing the industry to do something it doesn't want to do. It's, It's actually, I think, the opposite. I think that the federal government tends to push too hard, a little bit unrealistically, put forward aspirations that are unachievable and harmful. And that's where I'm hoping we can find um, a pathway that's going to be a little more productive than the one we've seen in the last seven years. When you and I spoke during the uh, campaign, leadership campaign for the UCP, you were very direct on what the situation was going to be as far as Mr. Trudeau forcing or declaring that the provinces were going to take certain actions, and you were very direct about what your response would be as premier, if he crossed the line into provincial jurisdiction. And that brings us, I imagine, into the issue of the Sovereignty Act. So if there is a collision between the initiatives of Mr. Trudeau and the determined response by the premier of Alberta, Premier Smith, what happens? 
we are going to take the lead on getting our products to market. And we're going to do it within the framework that I think the country wants. The country wants us to develop our resources in an environmentally responsible way. And we are. And we're going to assert that. I've already had a, a conversation with uh, some of my provincial counterparts about how we might work together on developing economic corridors and pathways so that we can get our product to market. And that, I think, might be the, the first test of the relationship. I would like to see us work with our First Nations partners. You may have seen I made uh, Chief Billy, former Chief uh, B, Chief Billy Moore, and his former Chief Finock. I've, I've asked for him to be on my transition team to help me with establishing these relationships with all of the, the uh, treaty area grand chiefs so that we can start working on an economic corridor and economic reconciliation where we can work in partnership to develop out a lot of this infrastructure. I, I Normally, you'd expect the federal government to take the lead on this. It's actually their job to do that. It's their job to b- build these pathways under trade and commerce. But if they're going to fail in their job, it's also partly our job to work on getting our products to market. So, so I think that's going to test the relationship. But I think that we're, we're, we're going to be on solid ground in pushing that forward. Where does the Sovereignty Act fit, fit into this into this picture? I think that you've seen a number of actions in the in the country where you've got provinces that are asserting their their rights to t- to manage their own affairs. I've mentioned Quebec and how uh, they pushed back when the Emergencies Act was was first ele- was first uh, declared at the federal level. Quite rightly, as it turns out, there was no justification for the Emergencies Act, and they said they didn't want it enforced in their province. You saw in in Saskatchewan, Scott Moe's been very strong on your show in particular. I love it when you have him on talking about how reduction in fertilizer use is just not on next and weekend agriculture. Agriculture is an area of provincial joint jurisdiction, but we're supposed to take the lead on that. Look at British Columbia. British mm-hmm. Columbia has never enforced the the drug laws. Now they've asked for a formal um, dispensation from the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act. So you, you already see that provinces say, "Hey, look, we do things a little bit differently around here." Yeah, I understand. I but that- but you've said but you've said uh, that you're going to deliver the Sovereignty Act. So where yeah. does that fit into a disagreement with uh, with the uh, federal government? For example, Mr. Trudeau insists he's going to continue to raise the uh, the carbon tax. Yesterday, Sylvain Charlebois, who is a professor at Dalhousie, as you know, and the head of the Agri-Foods uh, Laboratory there, told us that uh, not once has the federal government considered the impact of the carbon tax on the price on food. At the same time, we know 23.6% of Canadians are cutting back on food purchases because they can't afford it. And 7.1% are telling Dalhousie they've been forced to skip meals because of the price of food. Mm -hmm. So if there is a push and shove that develops between the federal government and the government of Alberta, which you will will be leading... Where does the Sovereignty Act fit in? When do you just say to them, no? There's certain things we can do and certain things we can't. Where we say no is on things like them asking us to use our RCMP resources to confiscate guns. We've already clearly said no, as has Saskatchewan and Manitoba. The step I would add to that is that when we do make those decisions, I'd like for them to be debated openly in the legislature because that's a pretty solid line that we're drawing. So just understand that uh, that would be an additional step that we'd have in defending our our constitutional jurisdiction. As for the carbon tax, I intend to, to re-challenge that. I've give, been given advice that people tend to think that once the Supreme Court has rendered a decision, you can never challenge the issue again. It's not double jeopardy. It's not like a murder case. What it is is that if new information comes forward, you absolutely can challenge it again. And what is what new information has emerged since that we lost that case was, number one, a war in Ukraine, which has caused international instability in the movement of the energy. 
massive surge in all types of hydrocarbon fuel pricing and a huge affordability crisis for our most vulnerable and our seniors. And I think that that new information, especially combined with the things that we started talking about, all the ways in which the industry are making dramatic reductions in industrial emissions. Mm-hmm. I'd like to challenge that again, and I think we might be able to win it this time. So there are certain things when the Supreme Court has rendered a decision, we have to find a, an alternative pathway to make a better argument. But I, I think that we've got to defend our territory in the first place so that when – so Ottawa understands, just just don't in, invade our jurisdiction. You don't have a right to legislate in our areas any more than we have a right to legislate in yours. And I think we, we can have a really constructive conversation about how the country is supposed to work the way okay. the founders intended with Alberta taking that strong stance. And I hope others follow us. I will volunteer to moderate when the uh, when the questions arise now. I look forward to that. <laughs> I'll take you up on it. All right. You've got it. So questions now. You, you announced yesterday you're running in a by-election. It will be in Brooks Medicine Hat. But you're not supporting a by-election in the Calgary Elbow Riding where Doug Schweitzer has resigned. Why not? couple reasons. Number one is there may be other retirements that happen. And so we'd end up with potentially a cascading number of by-elections and the extra cost associated with that. And we're only a month uh, or less than a year out from an election. So when you're less than a year from an election, it is a a constitutional convention that you you don't have to call a a by-election. We also don't have a candidate chosen in that riding. So I know that there are a couple of um, of potentials, but they need a process that they would go through in in trying to determine who their candidate would be. And for me, um, since we do have a general election coming up in May and I'm committing to that, I I would rather just uh, not have the extra expense associated with multiple by-elections. I, we have a convention where the adjacent MLA takes care of the of that riding. And I always said I wanted to represent a rural riding. Um, I live in a, a rural riding currently. Um, Michaela Fr- uh, Fry stepped down uh, to make way for me in a very similar type of riding in Brooks Medicine Hat because I want to send a signal that rural Alberta matters and their okay. voice has not been respected at the table and it is going to be respected at the table. I, I love our, our, our rural parts of our province. All right. And I think it will send a really strong message that uh, they are going to have a voice. Suggesting that toxic behavior is somehow a specific hockey problem or to scapegoat hockey as a centerpiece for toxic culture is, in my opinion, counterproductive to finding solutions and risks overlooking the change that needs to be made more broadly to prevent and address toxic behavior, particularly against women. Andrea Skinner, then still the chair of the board of Hockey Canada, defending the management team as she did throughout the questions. We did a very lively and very engaging segment on this issue yesterday for the full hour with your calls and with guests. And uh, a few hours later, I'm not suggesting that what we did was the reason why this happened, but Andrea Skinner resigned as the chair of the board. So what does this mean going forward? What does it mean to Hockey Canada? What does it mean to the in-place management team? Particularly when you also factor in that the key sponsors, many key sponsors, have just declared they will no longer provide sponsorship for Hockey Canada under the current environment. And they were very direct. Uh, Scotiabank, TELUS, uh, Tim Hortons, very direct. I read you statements yesterday. Well, back with us as he was yesterday is Anthony Housefather, Liberal Member of Parliament. He's a lawyer, and uh, he's also a member of the Parliamentary Ethics Committee involved in the questioning last Tuesday of Ms. Skinner. Anthony, thank you for coming back. Are you surprised by the decision made by Ms. Skinner last night? So I'm not surprised in the sense that Andrea Skinner, as her, t- as her testimony showed, became almost an apologist for Hockey Canada 
and I think they ended up seeing her as a liability. Um, the problem I see here is that, if you recall, Roy, last time they had Michael Brindamore, who was the former chair of the board, resign, but nobody else resigned. Scott Smith didn't resign as CEO, none of the management resigned, and none of the other board members resigned. And they thought that would be enough. And I'm wondering if, again, they're going to say, okay, well, we've gotten rid of Andrea Skinner, who didn't do well at the Heritage Committee on Tuesday. Um, you, know, uh, you know, maybe we can wait it out now and we don't have to get rid of Scott Smith or any of the management. And, and I think that would be a terrible, uh, you know, position that Hockey Canada takes, but we're going to have to wait and see. This is not going to go away. The fact that Miss Skinner resigned is not going to change anything. It's not certainly going to change the fact that the public is demanding many people in the public across this country demanding the resignation or the firing of the management team in the wake of the $8.9 million. Hockey Canada says it approved in 21 out-of-court settlements, sexual assault allegation settlements, since 1989. So, But from your perspective, from the ethics, parliamentary ethics committee perspective, does it change what you do now? Does it change the approach of the committee? Uh, so just just to note, it's the Heritage Committee, not the Ethics Committee. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, we're the yeah. ones responsible for sports, uh, culture, and communications. Yeah. That being said, no, I don't think this show this changes anything in terms of how we're going to approach Hockey Canada. Uh, again, it's a symbolic res- resignation, the same as with what happened with Michael Brindamore a few months ago. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, this doesn't change the culture at Hockey Canada. It doesn't change the management. And I just have this feeling that for a second time, Hockey Canada is going to say. Let's get rid of the chairman of the board and everyone else just stay and see if we can wait it out. Can they? No, I, I don't think that they can. I think they would be delusional to believe that they can, given the way all parties and the parliament feel, given the way all the sponsors seem to feel, the provincial federations, uh, you know, and the ordinary hockey parents and, and participants. No, I mean, I don't think they can. But again, as you saw, Roy, the, the position they took coming into the hearings on Tuesday seemed to be a bit delusional as well. It really did seem that way, and when I listened to Ms. Skinner's explanations or answers to the questions that were asked on Tuesday, I I almost felt sorry for her. Not quite, but I almost felt sorry for her because it's almost as though she was painted into a corner um, by the the entire Hockey Canada structure, which has been around for a long time and has been paying out these out-of-court settlements. Uh, for for a long period of time, a baggage car attached to baggage car. We know there were two such f- funds, and and it would be very difficult to overcome. But when you're the chair of the board, your responsibility is to the entire organization, not to the management team. Now, um, Anthony, how much time do they have? I'm talking about the management team now to finally realize what it is Canadians are demanding. Not only Canadians, but also their sponsors, Tim Hortons, Scotiabank, Telus, and those very direct statements these organizations made about the structure of Hockey Canada and how disappointed they are that things haven't changed. How much time do they have? I don't think they have very much time because I think there's going to be another Heritage Committee hearing in the next couple of weeks, which if they've done nothing by then will cause them untold embarrassment yet again. Um, and I think the sponsors are not going to stand for no, no action. And the World Junior Championships, as you know, are happening in the Atlantic provinces in New Brunswick and the in Nova Scotia, and, uh, and, and both premiers and the mayors have said that they may well, uh, you know, pull the world championships, the world juniors, if Hockey Canada doesn't do anything. So I don't think they have that much time left. But yet again, remember, Roy, they just postponed their board election by a month until December. Yeah. So everything they're doing seems to fly in the face of, okay, we're changing things. It is, it is stunning 
that they that are doing this. I'm just looking at uh, part of the statement from Tim Hortons. We've communicated to Hockey Canada on many occasions that the organization needs to take strong and definitive action before it can regain the faith and trust of Canadians. Um, we're deeply disappointed in the lack of progress that Hockey Canada has made to date. Scotiabank, uh, from Hockey Canada, we expect a tangible commitment to transparency with Canadians, strong leadership, accountability with their stakeholders, and the hockey community. Ultimately, our position hasn't wavered. The time for change is long overdue. Now, you're a lawyer. You get the what's going on. You're a member of the Heritage Committee. By the way, ethics should be part of every committee, parliamentary committee. But... I mean, ethics certainly should be part of all yeah, parliamentary yeah, committees. Yeah. Oh, everything that happens in government, anywhere in government. But <laughs> what we could talk about that all day, if you like. What... Um, what about what kind of structure do you envision um, for Hockey Canada? What do you think should change everything? Well, I, I mean, I, I don't know about everything. I mean, I think it, it's more the people that are there and the priorities, right? It, Hockey Canada needs to put in place a culture that has a zero tolerance policy for sexual misconduct. It needs to have training programs that are put in place for people at all levels of hockey. Uh, it needs to have people who, in good faith, want to work towards a different type of system. I don't think it's the structure, like the way that they're organized between the federations and the national body that's the problem. It, 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 it's the management that's there and what they've done over the last period of time, which seems to be a very big sense of entitlement mm-hmm. um, in condoning a culture um, of, you know, boys will be boys and let's pay the people off. Yeah, the provincial associations should have a lot to say about how this federal, the national association, uh, makes changes. Now, Alison Forsyth who was with us yesterday, who will be with me right after you and I speak, was sexually assaulted by her national team ski coach and experienced Alpine Canada requesting in the presence of the coach that she remain silent about the sexual assaults because if she didn't, it may affect their sponsorships. Gymnastics athletes are speaking out. Do we have a systemic problem? In sports organizations. The Heritage Committee broadens our study on Hockey Canada to start dealing with all other sports. It's now going to be called Safe Sports in Canada. And we've scheduled at least four meetings with other sports. And gymnastics, I think, will certainly be one of them. Uh, You know, bobsled skeleton will be one of them. Um, and, and we're going to start looking at other sports as well, because it is very clear, based on the story you just, you just recited to me, um, that there are problems, great problems in other federations as well, with this kind of idea that, you know, we need to, uh, you know, it's up to the athlete who's been mistreated to be quiet so that, you know, the federation doesn't lose money. Now, can you imagine that a federation would have the gall to sit down an athlete who's been sexually assaulted by her national team coach, who incidentally, uh, shortly thereafter, was uh, sentenced to 12 years in prison, sat her down on a bed in a hotel room with the coach and representatives of Alpine Canada in her presence, saying, be quiet about this. I'm paraphrasing, of course. Be quiet about this, because if you speak out publicly, it could cost us sponsorships. That speaks to me of an absolute systemic arrogance that we're above everything else, and you will do whatever we say, regardless of what may or may not happen to you. I think, I think it's worse than that. I mean, beyond that, I think it's possibly criminal behavior. I mean, if you're telling a survivor of sexual assault not to go to the police, and you're putting pressure on them not to do so, you may be hitting, you may be hitting, you know, into the criminal law as well. 
So I, I encourage, you know, your brave guest to, you know, to do whatever she needs to do to expose that. And, you know, very happy to listen to her story. Here's a couple of words from the TELUS uh, news release when they announced they were no longer going to be funding or supporting Hockey Canada financially under the current management structure. We are deeply disheartened by the lack of action and commitment from Hockey Canada to drive necessary cultural change. I just have this feeling, it's just a gut feeling, but I have a feeling that uh, I don't think this management team is going to survive the rest of the day. I mean, like, today. I can't see the National Hockey League not applying tremendous pressure in this regard. They don't like any of this. They don't want it to continue. And the pressure is being applied on the management team from every possible compass point. Alison Forsyth, former Canadian Olympic skier, board member at Athletes Can, which represents Canadian national team athletes. Also a partner and chief operating officer at ITP Sport. It's a safe sport consulting and programming agency. And Ms. Forsyth, as you know from our conversations, was sexually assaulted by the national team coach. And uh, he received 10 years or 12 years in prison. And then the parole board said, well, you're a low risk. We'll let you go early. That's just outrageous. And Almost as outrageous as Alpine Canada sitting Miss Forsyth on a on a bed in a hotel room with her assaulter and saying, "Can you just please be quiet about this because we don't want to lose our sponsors? This is systemic." Allison, thank you for coming back on the program. Are you surprised that the uh, resignation by uh, by the now former board chair? You know, I am a bit surprised because the way that she was speaking in the parliamentary hearings, and I think most of us Canadians would say that did not go very well for her, um, but I think the way she was speaking came across like she had some pretty serious and strong convictions. Um, so I won't, I try not to ever, you know, prophesize or think in too much about what other people are going through. I'm sure it's been a challenging 48 hours for her, and she's, you know, a human being above all else. So with respect to her, I think it was, you know, the, obviously, probably the right decision um, for her, and, and undoubtedly, I would say, probably the right decision for her mental health at this point. I can't imagine what she's had to had to endure. However, it doesn't take away from, you know, the gravity of her defensiveness um, up until this point. And I think we could all just sit here in curiosity as to, you know, what's next. But it's, it's, it's time for more change. This is obviously... Um, you know me, Roy, this is definitely not enough. Um, she's too far from the actual impact of what has happened. Um, so the, the, you know, the acting leaders that make the decisions every day are the ones that need to um, also leave. Yeah, for sure. This also though, leaves the entire board, the remainder of the board, and uh, the management team exposed. I mean, I don't see how they have any other recourse than to you know, wave the white flag. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree, and I, I get disheartened to think about now what? You know, we're just going to waste more time. Well, you know, there's still victims out there. There's still people struggling. Um, you know, they managed to put in place an action plan, quote-unquote, if you saw my air quotes right now, in 48 hours once this crisis broke, yet they've really done nothing since then except switch people out. People have been resigning, being defensive, suing the government. I mean, it just goes on and on. So they need to wave the white flag. Um, and it's time to step away. And, and I truly believe there are sport leaders in this country that can step in. And, and our children are so far removed from Hockey Canada, unfortunately not probably from the funding that they'll need to get back. But um, I'm at a rink right now. <laughs> 
speaking of which, but I think they're so far removed that I have no doubt that hockey will continue tomorrow and be in a much more positive place once this transition occurs. Yeah, and they also have to deal with the fact that provincial federations have had it with them, are withdrawing uh, support and funding. It, it, it's just crumbling around them. They've got nothing left to hold on to. But let's talk a little bit more about what it is that you do at ITP Sports, because uh, if we have a systemic situation across this country in at least some national sports organizations, and we know what you challenge, were challenged with by Alpine Canada, mm-hmm. uh, what is it you do at, at ITP Sport, Allison? And tell us about the success that you're having or the work that you're doing with Soccer Canada. Well, that's great. Thank you for asking. So um, our company, it's myself and my business partner, Elan Yampolsky. He's worked in safeguarding of children and safeguarding in sport for 15 years. Um, I obviously bring a unique perspective of a survivor um, of sexual abuse within the system, so firsthand lived experience and expertise. Um, what we recognized, Roy, about two years ago was this was a massive issue in the country. We were already managing independently, managing complaints on behalf of some national sporting organizations, and we just looked around and said, okay, who, who if not us, um, can support both, obviously, due process for complainants and respondents, because we do do independent complaint management. Um, I am the fortunate person who gets to head up prevention. So I focus a lot on very specific, sports-specific, um, you know, normalization of behavior-specific prevention and awareness um, and education. The big thing here, Roy, that I want everyone to understand is every sport has an issue with the normalization of behaviors. Um, Most notably, you see that toughen them up attitude that is still going on in sports. So I specialize in breaking through the culture, um, the toxic culture and shifting the behaviors to be safer for all participants. Do do you agree? Is it your sense that I don't want to just use a word um, at random here, but do you have a sense there's a systemic issue in uh, national sports organizations? I mean, when I first heard that Hockey Canada uh, management were having uh, championship rings cast for themselves that cost $3,000 each, I thought, wait a minute, you weren't on the ice. You you did nothing to really earn this this ring that you're going to be sporting. So is there a systemic issue across the spectrum here? Absolutely. Um, there is, Roy, and, and part of this is, as you just mentioned, there's a huge gap between the athlete base in a national sporting organization um, and the administrators. So that's the biggest gap that I see and the gap that I try to close because there are great sports administrators out here um, trying to do great things on behalf of their national team athletes, but if they stay in the boardrooms and if they're you know, focused on producing the rings and you know, maybe... I don't know, flying somewhere to hand out inappropriate medals to women's national teams. I mean, if that's their focus and it's ego-based and organizational protection-based, we're all in trouble. So we need to close the gap between the administrators of the organization and why they're there, which is the athletes and coaches on the field of play or on the race. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So, we were just talking about the price of gasoline. And the decision made by OPEC to cut back its um, production by 2 million barrels a day. 
and what it means to this country. And we spoke with uh, Premier-elect, uh, Premier-designate Smith about the situation uh, with energy in this country and what may occur as far as any differences may be concerned between Alberta and the federal government going forward. So I had this idea, though, a couple of days ago, and I mentioned this to you a few minutes ago. I was thinking about some of the energy projects that we've had in this country. There were multi, multi-billion dollar projects, massive projects, which would have cost a tremendous amount to build, but the money was there. And uh, they would have brought a tremendous amount of money into this country as the product was sold, the product being oil and natural gas. And I thought about projects like uh, the Frontier Mine, Texas Frontier Mine. There was Northern Gateway. Remember that? How about Energy East, where the uh, premier of Quebec said, that this thing's not going through my province. And there wasn't really any, wasn't any support from Mr. Trudeau and his government, who talked about phasing out the Alberta oil sands early in his tenure, and then apologized for saying that. But we know what the objective is. So there wasn't anything done to, to rescue um, these these projects, Pacific Northwest LNG pipeline, British Columbia's export terminal, and the Prince Rupert LNG project. I, you know, it's hard for me sometimes to even remember what the details were of these situations. And and then there's the question about whether in today's Canada, in in today's Canada, and in our regulatory environment, whether it's possible to satisfy the process, the regulatory process, to build an oil or natural gas project from the start, and how many years will securing permits take, and how much opposition will there be? Will investment money come into this country under those circumstances? I don't think so. So I thought about, who can I talk to about this? And the first name was the, uh, was the person uh, who's on the air with me now, Professor Ken Coates, Canada Research Chair in Regional Innovation at the Johnson Shoyama Public School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan. Not only is the professor uh, highly versed in the issue of regional innovation, but he's also well-versed, extremely so, in Aboriginal rights, northern development, science, technology, and in society. Now, his books include Arctic Front, Defending Canada in the Far North, and What to Consider if You're Considering University. Ken, thank you so much uh, for, for coming on the program. Let's let's talk about these, uh, these projects and, and what happened. Which one perhaps typifies most to you what the problem is or identify the problem for us as, it, as you see it and how much money uh, was available to us and how much money have we lost? So that's a complicated set of questions. Uh, probably the one that typifies the problem the most is the, uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline. This is a really relatively straightforward pipeline. We were actually twinning an existing pipeline. We knew the route, we knew the technology, we knew the river crossings, all that sort of thing. And and this has been under the work under underway for for more than a decade. Um, the regulatory burden on this one is absolutely through the roof. Um, the empowerment of, of protesters and people who oppose the pipeline is unbelievable. Um, the federal government keeps changing the rules to, to give more authority to people who don't like the pipelines and, and who basically are never going to stop fighting against them. They're going to continue arguing until the day the, the energy starts to flow. <clears throat> that This particular project has gone massively over budget, and the critics look back and say, oh, it's not economic. It's not economic because of all the barriers and resistance and problems that were put in place. In fact, and people still believe it is economic. So this is sort of asking people who don't build pipelines and uh, whether something's going to be economically valuable or not is not a good thing to do. But let's be clear about this. We have lost probably $100 billion 
in investment, both in the oil sands and in, in natural gas fields, plus the pipelines, plus the infrastructure, plus the processing facilities. Um, we're lucky to get a couple of them through. The, the LNG pipeline being built in Kitimat is getting fairly close to, to development. Um, this is the coastal gas link and natural gas pipeline. It's doing rel relatively well with some fairly major resistance in, in, in addition. Um, but these are small potatoes. We, we, we could have, and if you go back to the Harper government days, uh, they, they were sort of perhaps too, un too uncontrollably enthusiastic about the oil and gas sector. Uh, Prime Minister Harper kept talking about Canada as an energy superpower, kept talking about all the great things that Canada could and should and must do. Um, then you get a government that's completely different. Uh, they just basically are putting it, you know, they say they're going to let these pipelines go ahead, but they do so most, most reluctantly. Uh, they really don't really support the idea of these things moving moving ahead expeditiously. Um, and Canada is very much the poorer for it. And we would be having much more money available to us as a country, uh, more revenue, more more jobs, more economic investment. But the investment's largely gone, and it's going to be very, very hard to get it back. We weren't prepared, were we, for, or we maybe weren't, or the government wasn't willing to um, accept that the situation could dramatically change, as it has. We're looking at, a, at Europe, and Professor Thierry Bro, the former head of energy security for France, has told us on several occasions on this program, he's painted a very worrisome picture of what Europe will face this winter as Russian gas is cut off. He's talked about up to two hours a day of uh, blackouts in Europe. And uh, we know that the, the cost has gone up dramatically in Europe for, for energy. One of our guests told us eightfold in Germany over the last year. We have European governments ordering thermostats be kept at 19 degrees Celsius, not, not raised above that. It's the kind of life that, that we didn't anticipate, but we should have... Isn't it, isn't it natural for a government to anticipate the, the possible? In other words, renewables were not so reliable that they could step up and, uh, and, and replace natural resource, the uh, oil and, and gas. We, sh we could have and should have seen this, something like this coming, no? Oh, I, I think not only should we, we did. And I don't mean me myself uh, individually. The oil and gas sector understood this. The energy sector, even the people behind the climate change technology, said it's going to be you know 2050 before we can really reduce our consumption of, of oil, oil and natural gas to to much lower levels. You know, we we knew all this. Um, there were lots of people warning about the potential vulnerabilities of depending on Russian. Russian supplies. So so that is a, a sort of a knowable and an easily anticipated sort of problem. Um, so now that's that's really come back to bite us in the backside. We're really paying not a price just in 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 Europe for that, but also in the broader developing and develop, developing worlds where they're looking for energy, fuel, fertilizers, wheat and things yeah. of that sort. That's so right. we've got crisis upon crisis upon crisis in front of us. If this is a cold winter, which it, it has the potential to be in Europe, uh, we will hear people screaming from the rooftops about the problems that are there. And the interesting thing here is if Canada had linked itself up to a, a global energy supply system, we would have taken steps a long time ago. The world is, is, going, to, is going to consume a certain amount of energy regardless of where it comes from. Um, I would much prefer to have Canadian energy, which is produced under the most stringent environmental regulations in the world, 
than actually bringing stuff in from from uh, uh, Saudi Arabia or from Venezuela or from Nigeria. These are countries that have less than stellar reputations in terms of human rights and environmental protection. You know, Canada should look after itself and should have charted its its own economic, its own energy future in league with its major allies, not just in Europe but also in Asia, Southeast Asia. We, we could have we could have been pragmatic about this. If you even go back a few years, we had five or six different LNG projects, sort of at different stages of development and possibilities, um, all across um, all across British Columbia. You know, and and they've almost all fallen by the wayside, except the one in in Kitimat with the Heisler First Nation that's actually going ahead. So you know, the frustration is intense. The frustration, incidentally, in the indigenous community is intense. Um, the government of Canada's major failing in this regard is if a even if a fairly small number of indigenous people protest a pipeline, they will actually throw their weight and spend a lot of time listening to them. If a much larger group of people representing much larger and diverse set of communities throw their support behind a pipeline, the government doesn't listen at all. Um, and in fact, resist their, their requests and demands to get things going. So the, the word is out there. We've known this was coming for uh, quite quite some time. And we're starting to pay a price for it in Canada. Our energy energy costs are, are quite through the roof. They're over $2 a, bear, a, a, a liter here in, in, in British Columbia right now. And they're on, was $1.89 or something like that in Saskatchewan. You know, the prices are crazy. And we don't have to have prices of that high. That high. We could have done a much, much better job. Um, and the frustration is really boiling over in many, many parts of this country. Yeah, and rightly so. Ten years ago, we were going to be the country that was going to be supplying energy to the world as it needed. Energy as in oil and natural gas. And as you point out, the uh, I think it's the International Energy Agency pointed out, they said until 2050 or 2060, we're going to be consuming a really significant amount of oil and natural gas on a daily basis. And even after that, it's not going to be inconsiderate. So um, we have uh, we, we had an opportunity. We were going to be the supplier. And as you said, we've lost something like $100 billion in investment. And now we find ourselves on the back foot. So let me take a quick break here, Ken. And then when we come back, I'll ask... I'll ask you if there's some way for Canada to get back into the game or, or if you think there's the appetite for Canada to get back into the game. We recently had Olaf Scholz here, the, uh, the uh, head of Germany, and he wasn't here to talk about uh, anything other than natural gas. That's what they wanted. They wouldn't talk about hydrogen. They wanted to talk about natural gas. So, Ken, where we are today, we have a world that requires what we have. But we just don't have the ability to get it to them in the quantities that they require. Is there a way out of this, uh, given what we know about the regulatory process and how difficult it is to get anything passed in this country? And is there – do we have the – do we have – can we persuade investors to put money into this country to, to create an energy supply that we can export? So, great questions. Um, here's an irony, and it's a huge irony. If we find a path forward, it will be because First Nations, Inuit, and Métis people are part of the process and, in fact, are active supporters of it. So there is a proposal around right now for a natural gas pipeline that will go to Prince Rupert, British Columbia. It's being brought forward. 
uh, with international partners who are basically guaranteeing to buy the product, um, but brought forward by First Nations, particularly from the Prince Rupert area. And isn't that ironic that, in fact, you know, that the, you look at the history of our mistreatment of indigenous people, that we now sort of realize that a big part of our energy future is, uh, is rests out there in, in, the, in the control of indigenous folks. So that's number one. Number two is we have a, a protest community here. It's uh, largely based in Canada, but, but not entirely. A lot of support from different parts of the world, um, and particularly the United States. Um, those protesters aren't going away. They're, in fact, getting, they've been emboldened over the last 10 years. They're getting more aggressive, more assertive, more demanding. Um, and they're not going to disappear just because somebody else approves a pipeline. They're going to find a thousand ways uh, to fight against it. And they'll keep fighting and fighting as long as they possibly can. So those are the, the two major issues. Um, third, the current government has very little credibility on energy, energy matters. Um, and, and so as long as they're in power, not very many companies are going to spend a lot of money in the Canadian energy sector. They'll keep the existing plants going and they'll modernize facilities. But in the last couple of years, instead of saving money for future development, they've been actually paying out very, very substantial dividends to their stockholders uh, because they are making big profits and things are going very well. Um, but here's the biggest problem. The biggest problem is actually the international community. Um, is the international community willing to trust Canada? And the answer, I don't, I can't see this changing for five years plus, um, is that, in fact, no, they're not. Um, they're not going to be willing to change really quickly and sort of come back and say, oh, okay, you said you're sorry, and now you want to see this kind of investment. Um, the German uh, you know, uh, energy minister was over a short time ago, clearly wanted to talk about LNG, um, got some very muted conversation going about hydrogen power, which is a very long-term and very risky sort of possibility. Um, the world's not going to change very rapidly, and I don't think that the, the global investment community is really going to put a lot of confidence in Canada. They have confidence in Norway. Um, they're putting money into Australia. They're going to find opportunities in other places, including the Middle East, uh, including Venezuela, uh, probably other places in Africa, um, and they're not so keen to come back to Canada. We have to win their trust back. Um, and I think Canadians need to understand that, that there's going to be a price. And, and there are a lot of Canadians who agree we should keep our energy in the ground, even though it will not reduce consumption dramatically. We'll still consume the same amount of energy. It'll just be done and produced under less favorable conditions than if we had it in Canada. Um, but, but in fact, there's going to be a price. And we've already seen the price in investment. We've seen the price in terms of business opportunities. We're going to see it showing up dramatically in areas such as um, uh, jobs and employment, particularly in, in, uh, in Western Canada, which doesn't seem to trouble the rest of the country as much as it should. Um, and, but we're also going to see that start to filter through. We can't afford social programs. We won't be able to afford the, afford the upgrading of the, of the healthcare sector that we so desperately need and want. So frustrations abound, to say the least. Last weekend and this weekend, as well as in the weeks to come, wrongfulconvictionday.com. Have a look at this, by the way, wrongfulconvictionday.com. Check out the website. It's going to be acknowledged and spoken about in Canada and the United States. Canadians, could be you. I'm not kidding. Canadians who had nothing to do with the vicious crimes, including murder, for which they were convicted and often spent many years in prison. Think about that. Thanksgiving Day, right? Canadians have, who had nothing to do 
with a crime, vicious crime, including murder, for which they were convicted and spent years in prison before they were found innocent and released. Ronald Dalton is the president of Innocence Canada. Ron Dalton was wrongfully convicted of killing his wife. He's been a guest on this program before. But given the fact that we're talking about Wrongful Conviction Day, and remember, wrongfulconvictionday.com, I've invited Mr. Dalton back, president of Innocence Canada, and he has kindly consented to return. How are you, Ron? What do you think of on Thanksgiving Day? What are the thoughts you have about what happened to you? Well, good afternoon, Roy. Uh, first and foremost, now, a happy Thanksgiving to you and your listeners. Thank you. Uh, on, on a day like this, uh, I give thanks to be on this side of prison bars instead of on the other side. But I, I also uh, look at uh, people who are still behind prison bars, people who were there when I was there 30 years ago, whose cases we're still working on. Canada has much to be proud of in our criminal justice system. We've, uh, we've recognized the folly of having death penalty uh, when you can't be certain that you're getting cases right, uh, unlike other countries that still impose and, and uh, not only have the death penalty on their books, but they actively use it. So in Canada, we can be thankful for that. But we don't want to be so complacent as to think that our justice system is, is perfect. I'm thankful for organizations like Innocence Canada and others. There are other groups at the universities. The UBC has a, has a good innocence project. There's one at the University of, of Ottawa doing some work. We're the only organization doing this work on a national basis in Canada. So if you happen to find yourself in the unfortunate position of being convicted for something that you haven't done, you want to be giving thanks that there is an Innocence Canada yes, sir. organization around. Yes, sir. You spent close to nine years in prison, right? It's true. For a crime you did not commit. James Lockyer was an assistant professor of law at McGill University and the University of Windsor, criminal lawyer for 45 years, and a founding director of Innocence Canada. Mr. Lockyer has been involved in high-profile cases in which he demonstrated the convicted person was in fact innocent of the crime. Think about this now. The whole process, the entire process, convicted a person of a crime they did not commit. And they were sent to prison, in some cases for life. Some cases they actually spend their lives in prison innocent. Some of the names you'll recognize that Mr. Lockyer worked on, the cases he worked on, Guy Paul Morin, first-degree murder, David Milgard, capital murder, James Driscoll, first-degree murder, Stephen Truscott, capital murder, Robert Baltovich, second-degree murder, and there were at least 30 more cases, including that of our other guest, Ronald Dalton. And uh, Rob Baltovich has been a guest on this program talking about his case and how he was convicted of murdering his girlfriend, Elizabeth Bain. But it really was largely the result of sloppy... Um, uh, inefficient, let me try to find a better word, police work. James, it's been a long time since we spoke. Actually, <laughs> come to think of it, it hasn't been the last time we spoke was on the day that David Milgar died. Yeah, it wasn't that too long ago. Um, that That's the very very bad thing of 2022, was David Milgar yes. dying. I, I guess the best you can do on Thanksgiving is give thanks that we had him uh, when we did. Um, but uh, uh, I miss him uh, um, Ron and I were uh, were both at his funeral, uh, um, and I was uh, uh, very privileged to give the eulogy for him. Twenty-three years in prison for a murder he did not commit. 
Yeah, 23 years in prison for a murder he didn't commit, 28 years before people finally accepted that he didn't commit the crime when the DNA results came in in uh, 1997 and the real man got charged uh, uh, 28 years after the event, uh, convicted and uh, died in jail, Larry Fisher, uh, four or five years ago now. (laughs) David was a a very interesting Wonderful guy to talk to. I had the opportunity to speak mm-hmm. with him on quite a few occasions. And his uh, his mother, Joyce, was on the program as she fought valiantly for her son's release. How easy, James, how easy is it? Because people wonder. People say, well, how could it happen? The well, police get involved. A crown attorney gets involved. You get a defense attorney. You go through the whole court process. And the court and the justice system has to be satisfied that you're guilty before they send you to prison. So how easy is it? and I choose that word easy advisedly, to be wrongfully convicted in Canada? Well, it's easier than most people would think. Um, and, and, you know, it, 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 we really shouldn't be surprised. Uh, there are so many human beings involved in the process, uh, pathologists, police, forensic scientists, civilian witnesses who may either uh, uh, be lying or be mistaken uh, crowns who uh, are over enthusiastic uh, uh, defense lawyers who uh, don't do a good job. You know, it's you put all that together, and and and, and you uh, you shouldn't really be surprised that we get you know wrongful convictions. Um, the, the 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 difficult part is uh, uh, setting them aside afterwards. That's that's difficult, time consuming, uh, and very difficult to do. Ron, remind us of your circumstance which uh, caused you to be convicted of murdering your wife. In, uh, in my case, uh, uh, back in 1988, I was a 32-year-old bank manager living in a small town in, in Newfoundland with my wife and, and three young children. Uh, my wife experienced a, a choking difficulty at home. We rushed her to the hospital. The emergency room happened to be in the charge of a student doctor who had never intubated a live patient. Uh, Didn't think he had much choice but to give it a try. Unfortunately, got it wrong. He put a breathing tube down into her stomach rather than leading to her airway, kind of sealed her fate. The following day, a hospital pathologist, not a board-certified forensic pathologist, but a hospital lab guy, uh, did an autopsy, thought he had a homicide, and told the police, you better go speak to the husband. And within an hour of him making that declaration, I was at a police station where I was held through the night and arrested and charged with murder before the sun came up. It was a rush to judgment by people who didn't have the experience or the expertise to properly know what they were doing. Uh, all the police at the time had to do was get a second opinion from a qualified forensic pathologist, and, and this whole ordeal would not have transpired for me. But too often, that's what happens. People who are used to working together uh, have this thin veneer of authority. People take them at their word and never bother getting the main pieces of evidence checked or double-checked. Scientific method tells you, and I'm no scientist, but uh, the scientific method will tell you that when you've exhausted all the other possibilities, what you're left with is the truth. So for the last 25 years since I've been out of prison, I've been encouraging people in the justice system to challenge everything. If it's the truth, then it'll stand up to challenge. Yeah. If it's not, then you better challenge it, find out that it's not, so you can go in, in the proper direction to to find the perpetrator, if there is one. In my case, in some of the uh, Charles Smith pediatric forensic cases in Ontario, there was no crime. 
We've had a number of people convicted for crimes that didn't even happen. James, how difficult is it to persuade the justice system to have another look at a case where somebody was found guilty of murder, specifically Ron? What happens and, and, and what led to the exoneration of Ron Dalton? Well, it's, that's what's extremely difficult, as I already said earlier. Um, you have to uh, find a very substantial, uh, fresh evidence. Um, you then have to go through a, a very complex bureaucratic procedure uh, in the minister's office in Ottawa, the justice minister. That's your only uh, remedy for a wrongly convicted person who's already be, assuming he's been through or she has been through the appeals system. And... Um, it's an extraordinarily slow process, and the present minister and the present government has promised to bring in a whole new system uh, and create a, a new uh, tribunal that will be independent of government, independent of the minister, and will have uh, w will itself make the decisions on uh, whether someone has been wrongly convicted. And, and the Liberals have been promising this for a while, and uh, we know that they are... Uh, they're working on it. Uh, you know, it's all very slow, but uh, we sure hope that uh, we're going to get it uh, during the course of this mandate. Where Ron's case is concerned, um, it was uh, uh, new pathology evidence. Uh, uh, Ron uh, and, and a lawyer, Jerome Kennedy, uh, put together a whole bunch of uh, pathologists from uh, around the world, really, uh, all of whom said that the pathology suggesting that his wife was a victim of murder was nonsense. In fact, uh, the um, the justification for charging Rom with murder was that uh, she showed signs of being having been strangled. Uh, in fact, all the physical signs on Ron's wife's body uh, had been caused. Uh, by the uh, paramedics and the medics trying to revive her. Um, so uh, in doing so, they created uh, marks that were then interpreted as being uh, a strangulation uh, by, uh, by, by Ron, her husband. So you, neither of you has any doubt that in prison right now, on Thanksgiving Day 2022, serving potentially life sentences or 10 or 20 year sentences, and maybe have been in prison for 10, 20 years, there's no doubt in your minds that innocent people are going through that right now. Yes? Absolutely. Wrong. Yep. What should the average Canadian no. What can we do as, as people in this country? I mean, there will always be people who hear Ron's story, hear Rob Baltovich's story, hear you, James, and say, my God, I had no idea. What can we do? What, what's our, what's our, what are our options? Well, Roy, I think what, what people have to know is that if it happened to me, it could happen to you. And if and when it happens to you, then you better hope that there's a James Lockyer or an Innocence Canada type organization around to help you out. Because there is no formal mechanism in the Canadian Criminal Code to correct wrongful convictions. The code doesn't even contemplate that mistakes could be made. It's taken us 30 years now to have enough credibility when we walk into court that they take us more seriously now than they did on some of our earlier cases. Uh, when you speak of websites for people to have a look at, uh, wrongfulconvictionday.com is, is a good one, but our website is innocencecanada.com. It'll give you a bit of history about what we've done. But what we need for change to happen in this country, and, and Reuben Hurricane Carter, 
who was once our, our executive director, used to say that uh, nothing will change until people uh, get as mad and angry as the people it's happened to, uh, when the general public get as mad and angry about this issue as the people who've had to live through the ordeal. Yeah. We, we need much greater awareness. We need people to lean on their politicians. We need to uh, ask our politicians to follow through on the several public inquiries and recommendations going back to the Donald Marshall inquiry, an inquiry looking into my own case. Uh, there's been seven public inquiries across the country, five of whom have all included a recommendation to create an independent, publicly funded body to do the type of work that Innocence Canada is doing as a nonprofit organization. The only thing standing between uh, myself or you, Roy, God forbid, uh, if you find yourself in this situation and a life sentence that uh, you can't escape from is a bunch of do-gooders who get together and spend half of their time raising money to exist and the other half fighting to overturn these cases. And are there more cases, more people left behind? Certainly. We're, we're currently working on 110 cases in our office. We have 10 pending before the uh, Justice Minister in Ottawa at the moment. And those are all cases where we're convinced that there's been a, a serious miscarriage of justice. Just glad you exist. Really just glad you exist. Uh, Reuben Carter was in the studio with me, sitting yeah. <laughs> three feet away from me on, on two or three occasions. And the stories he told and the, the, the passion that he brought to this situation was just absolutely incredible. Uh, James, let me come back to David Milgard. We have about a minute and a half here. What always struck me was about David and his case was after 15 years, he was offered the opportunity to get out. Just tell us you're guilty. Just admit that you did it, and we'll make sure you get out. And he said, no, I didn't do it. And uh, he served another eight years. I asked him about that, and he said, look, I didn't commit the crime. I wasn't about to, to admit to it. He was just absolutely remarkable. And are there, are there other David Milgards, personalities, real people with really wonderful characters in the prisons? Yeah, I mean, there are the, the people that uh, that I've been involved with over the years, and they range from a 14-year-old boy to mothers of infants to uh, in, indigenous uh, uh, black black people. Uh, and uh, indeed, in, in, we haven't had any radio personalities yet. You'll be pleased to know, Roy. But uh, we're relieved. We've had a court of appeal judge from uh, Quebec uh, wrongly convicted of the murder of his wife. Uh, you can't go much higher than that. No. Um, uh, and, and they've all been extraordinary people, uh, really without exception, Ron being, of course, one of them, too. Okay. Uh, but, but, but you're right. Uh, David, in, in many ways, really did stand out because having uh, uh, finally uh, been set free and having finally been recognized as innocent, mm -hmm. Uh, after the DNA results came in, he devoted the rest of his life to trying to help other people who were in prison who were wrongly convicted. Yes, right now. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 